This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the On Labs podcast. Our special guest today is Lee Trout. Oh my God, it's Lee. Lee, thank you so much for, for being here with us today. You're saying thanks for me. Thanks. Thanks to you, Bill. I appreciate it. It's a big opportunity for me. So thank you. No, this is awesome. I, I uh, Your name just popped up on Twitter for me and I was like, Looking at your profile, I said, Lee would be somebody cool to talk to. So we got to get Lee on the show. So I, I do really appreciate that you, you agreed to jump on with us today. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Nah, it's going to be cool, dude. I, I'm excited to hear, especially, you know, you got a lava lamp in the background there. That already tells me that, like, you're old school, old school cool. There you go. Thanks. I need to get a lava lamp now. I'm, I never owned a lava lamp. Like I had friends. You know, you got to remember, I'm 53, right? I kind of grew up in the 70s in a sense, right? I graduated high school in 87. We're going to talk about your life, though. But like lava lamps were a real thing for me growing up. I never had one. Maybe I had a really cheap one. But I knew people had like the super expensive ones, you know, where the, the lava really just flowed. That's right. That's right. The original, yeah, the OG. It was a heavier glass. It was, I think, just higher quality, like everything was. And I grew up, my grandmother, of all people, played Atari. She was addicted to Pac-Man. And on top of the TV set, she had the lava lamp. Because I don't know where you grew up. I think you grew up in the Northeast, but I'm in the, from the South. I was from Eastern Kentucky, middle of nowhere. And so your TV was a shelf for other things. You know, those big floor model TVs. It was a furniture. It was furniture. I had a, right. I had a furniture TV. Right, all made of wood and uh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So your grandmother had the lava lamp. I want to talk about all these things <laughs> now that okay. we're here. No, 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 not we're here. Is the lava? So why is the lava lamp there? Is it just because it's a childhood memory? Is it for your grandmother? Is it just because they're cool? Like just yeah. real brief. Yeah, no, it's because they're cool. I mean, it is a childhood memory, but that is unfortunately not that OG lava lamp that worked way better than anything you can buy today. Um, same company still making them though. Lavalamp.com, I think. I'm pretty sure. So we may edit that out. You know, it's like this is not an ad, but hey, they do make good lamps. It's all good. Yeah. It's natural. But why? Come on, Lee. Let, let, let's. Uh, how come you're not now, uh, after this episode? I want you to go and buy an OG. I don't care where you have to find it. Antique store, online. I think you deserve to have the OG of lava lamps, right? Don't you feeling like you're you're slacking a little bit now? They're, they're space heaters, though. That's the problem. We're up here. I'm in my attic, so I work in my little bonus room over my garage. And those lamps, the old ones, they put out the heat. They, they operate on, I think, even the new ones, too, 40-watt or 60-watt or bulbs to get hot enough to melt that wax. Uh, so where, where are you living right now? Because that was going to be a question anyway. So we're, yeah. we're, we're good with this. Graham, North Carolina. And uh, so it's right off Interstate 40, Central North Carolina, halfway between Greensboro and Durham. It gets cold over there in the winter. Like, you could turn the lava lamp on in December. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's better than Florida. Yeah, we, we have more than two seasons. I think Florida, you have what, hot and summer, I think, are your two seasons. I love Miami, man. <laughs> I, I grew up in New York. I, I If I never see snow again, my life is completely, okay? So yeah. now, to be fair, to be fair, if anybody's ever watched yeah. uh, Letter Kenny, to be fair, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I do have a place in Huntsville, Alabama, which I like to go to. 
for Christmas because if it's not cold for Christmas, it's just not Christmas. I, I don't mind the fact that I know fall was my favorite season ever. Like that, I, fall is my favorite season. I get that in Huntsville, right? I can have that for a few months. I call that hoodie weather. Fall is my favorite. I had a Jeep Wrangler. I've had a few Jeep Wranglers. And that was the thing. You know, when the fall season starts, you take the doors off. The sun's not roasting you. You put a hoodie on, riding around in the mountains, especially East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, Southwest Virginia, West Virginia, just get up in the mountains. Yes. Yeah. Hoodie weather. Hoodie, hoodie yes, weather. <clears throat> I love that. That's my new thing. It's not fall anymore. It's it's the season of hoodie right there. Right. And I like hoodies. By the way, my, my business partner, every time they want to get Arden, like jackets, they want to get the zipper because not that they have any hair, but it's like, oh, it messes up my hair and it's so easy. And I'm like, no, dude, they don't look as cool as a hoodie. I don't care about the hair. You got to have the kangaroo pocket. I mean, that's that's quintessential. You got to have room. You got to be able to put your hands all the way through the kangaroo style pouch pocket. Yeah. So I think what's happening is my business partner and everybody's from here. So they don't understand how important that kangaroo pocket is when you're cold outside, like to, to get your hands together That's or right. even to be able to slip your arms out of the sleeves and put your hands in your armpits when it gets really, have you ever had to do that? Of yeah. course I have. Yes. That's okay. real cold. Yes. That's real cold where you, you shouldn't have had the hoodie on. You made a mistake and the hands are too cold. They go under your armpit. Everybody listening to this understands what I'm saying, but not my business partner because he gets the zippy, the zippy ba you know, jackets. They're no good. You need the hoodie. I think anyone that rides a motorcycle, anybody that's ridden in cold weather, they know about putting your hands in your armpits when your fingers are going numb. Yes. Yeah, no, no good. Okay. All right, Lee. <laughs> We're having so much fun here already, dude. We're like seven <laughs> minutes in. We haven't even talked about you yet. Okay, tell everybody, give everybody that two-minute trail on what you're doing today. Yeah, so I am working for my little – I didn't do an LLC. I have a, a DBA, a fictional name. Uh, but I've had an LLC in the past called Engine Ignite, and I've been helping startups in various ways. And I am currently, at this moment, helping a startup called Hookdeck. And uh, we do some like webhook reliability stuff. It's pretty cool. You can drop us in and in between, uh, even if you're using Stripe, Stripe's one of like the best webhook providers out there. Even if you're using something like Stripe, they're really reliable. Uh, you put hook deck in between uh, your webhook sender and uh, your code that's receiving webhooks and we'll help you replay them and, and do all that stuff. And uh, for me, the opportunity that uh, hook deck gave me is to kind of do a little more DevRel stuff. Um, and I like talking a lot and we're going to see that. This is going to be an easy podcast for you, Bill. I love talking. And I was looking for an opportunity to, to put that to use. Um, and they needed some help. And I called the company. I called my little fictional name, my DBA, uh, Engine Ignite, because it's kind of silly. Because I'm like, I like helping startups start. And I like the, you know, all the things. It's because everything's kind of just hitting all at the same time. And I think it's a ton of fun. It's a lot of fun to be at an early stage company like that. And, so um, you like you the know, chaos. You, you like a little bit of that kind of chaos, just get it done, what popped up, make it happen. It's, that's what's interesting is I like adding process to things. I like adding process to structure. It was a ton of fun joining Hook Deck, so I'm going to brag just for a second. We got our SOC 2 Type 1 like, you know, three weeks ago. It may not be even my blog, but we can totally talk about it. Um, and I had a ton of fun doing that. I love putting that kind of process in place because back to that Agile Manifesto thing, people over process. Um, I don't like process for process sake. I have been a developer for 17 years now, long time. And it's, you know, you, you know what it's like to work somewhere that has process for no need to have a process. There's no point in kind of having handcuffs, but also you work that long and you kind of like, yeah, maybe we need a little bit of structure and so a little bit of process. And so I enjoy that. I enjoy, and I think, you know, it's an opportunity 
to help early stage companies uh, kind of appreciate that. I'm going to ask you one more question in this space before we, we kind of jump into the time machine, because I, I agree with you. You need a tiny bit of process just to have some structure and some routine. But if it's getting in your way, it's no good. Like I've used a Google Sheet before just to track what we're going to be doing during the week, just because mm -hmm. it was, it was the team was small enough and and we can maintain velocity with some structure, right? But my quick question is, especially for helping these startups, what is your kind of favorite tooling right now to add that little bit of routine and structure without it getting in the way? Honestly, GitHub. I mean, you, you think about everything a, a technical organization's doing, you can get so much mileage out of GitHub. GitHub issues or any integrations? Uh, well, that depends. It depends on how you want to structure, right? It's different for everybody. But yeah, if somebody was just starting a, a software startup today, I'd say do everything in GitHub. Use GitHub issues just to get started. Write down what you're going to do. But for productivity, Linear, it really has a great offering and all their defaults out of the box are great. They, they don't call them sprints. They call them cycles. And I love that. I love to try to like, yeah, linear, linear.app. I never heard of them. So we'll get that in the show notes and kind of take yeah. a look at it. So, okay, very cool, very cool. Okay, now look, 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 man. We got, we got to get you in the time machine. I need to know a little bit more about Lee. So my first question, though, before we – well, I got a couple questions. But first thing I need to know is when you graduated high school. I got to age you a little bit yeah. here. I'm sorry, but I got to understand what the world was like. Yeah. Uh, 2003. So I'm 37, almost 38. Okay. 2003 is the, okay. That's when I, my, my, had my last son, number five, I shouldn't say last number, number five was born in 2003. So that gives me a good, me even mentally kind of good idea of what, what's going on with Lee, at least partying out with his friends. And I'm like changing diapers in 2003. That's so, so just, just to get a sense of that. Okay. Now, Lee, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you jump into your the time machine a little bit here. One of my favorite questions to ask people, especially when they're in tech, is don't think about this. Okay, first memory pops in your head. What is that time that you remember being on a computer? That first moment where you were just like, "Wow, this thing is cool," or "I can do this," or something something really like wild. Yeah, DOS. My dad had a computer in like 1988 or 89, and it, I think it was DOS, just OG DOS. But yeah, he had a computer. It was upstairs in our house. And I just remember, you know, the monochrome screen, black and white, wasn't black and green, but black and white. And yeah, I just, we had DOS. And then we had a local Radio Shack in the mall. We had a little mall near us. And love Radio Shack. That's an equal memory for me because uh, you learn how to get into, I'm trying to remember what the, was it DOS or MS-DOS that came out? I'm kind of blurry on the time, but I learned how to run gorillas.bat. And that like changed my life. I'm like, whoa, there are games on this computer. That is amazing. <laughs> so you must have been, you're talking 88, 89. You're, you had to be young, dude. You had to be maybe like yeah. elementary school. I was four. School. Yeah, I was four. four five. Oh, not, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So yeah, yeah, you had to be. And you remember that. You, yeah. you have this four or five-year-old memory of a computer being in the, what did your dad do for a living that, a computer got into the house that there you early. go because you know what i i had my first computer in 85 and i had a dos machine probably yeah going into university around the same time Th they were expensive computers that was not cheap yeah there's a there's a couple of things my dad managed a bank so he was a uh um, he was an assistant manager and then manager of a local branch bank and um that local bank 
they had, uh, I think, four or five branches at the time. And so computers were coming into banking. And so he had uh, networked computers at work. And then obviously we're, we were not online. We did get Prodigy uh, in like 92, maybe 93. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not Googling. So you have to like double check me for accuracy. It could have been like 94, but it was Prodigy. It was both. I just remember it was kind of like, are you CompuServe or are you Prodigy? We were on Prodigy. You think this was like a computer he was able to just take home from the bank or something? I, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't, didn't address that. So I don't know why he bought the computer. He was into anything new tech. So, you know, he was, the, my family used to have CB radios when that was popular. My dad had the Laserdisc players. Um, he bought anything that looked very interesting at Radio Shack. We had satellite TV, so we had that giant, like, what is that, you know, two-meter dish in the backyard and all the de-scramblers and everything to receive signal. And yeah. So he was just super into tech, but you know, he worked in a bank. Basically he wasn't allowed. I have to imagine that he wasn't allowed at the time to walk into radio shack. Cause he wasn't going to walk out empty handed. You, you absolutely, <laughs> that is absolutely right. He, he bought one of those first model big screen TVs, the rear projector. And wow. Yeah. Like getting that upstairs, it took like, you know, two uncles had to come over and, you know, push it up these stairs. Yes. He was into anything latest and greatest. Could you, I, I imagine if you were conniving enough at a young age, that you could almost drop a seed on your dad if you wanted. Dad, you know, I just saw, I was walking in the mall, dad, and at Radio Shack had this really cool thing. Like drop a seed and next thing you know, you have it. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Absolutely. The good thing was like, I didn't have to ask for a lot of stuff. Like he just knew he's like, yep, we're having, we have a Nintendo. Of course we have a Nintendo. Um, yeah. So I was very fortunate in that I, I was spoiled from a very young age, having access to all this technology. My favorite thing to do. I love to tell the story. We had this, you know, very small modular home um, and it was great. And so we had this upstairs and there were windows on each end of the house and the TV and the satellite equipment was on one side. And then the window to see the satellite dish was on the other side. And I figured out, like, you know, the longest travel time for the dish was like from Telestar 1 to Galaxy 5. So you would go to the go to the transceiver and punch in, I want to go from T1 and wait, and I'd maybe like count to 30. And then I'd punch in G5 and hit go. And I would run to the other side of the house just to watch the dish move. So I feel kind of bad. I don't know how much of the lifespan I took out of that dish doing that over and over. But yeah, it was a blast. Just to see it move. I mean, Just this is heavy move. duty equipment back then. This is <laughs> yes, not a joke. Was. Like this isn't, this isn't, yeah, I don't know. I have any other word for it. I mean, that's not a joke. Like it's serious. What about the uh, other people in the house that were also responsible? For, were they going crazy every time you come home with something new or it was just like, yeah. this is, this is just expected. So a lot of family lived nearby. So uh, one neighbor was into the Tandy system of hardware. Uh, we were not. So we were in the IBM clones and then the other neighbors into Tandy. So there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, we would go to the other neighbor's house and we would see what programs they could run on their computer. And then they would come to our house. And, you know, any of my uncles or my dad's brothers and sisters, you know, they would come over anytime we had a gadget or something new. So, yeah, he loved to share and he loved to show people. Um, it was it was a really good environment. Your mom, right? Yeah. So I'm an only child. Okay. That's, yeah. I'm trying to get a sense if he had uh, any guardrails on. Uh... Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> not really. So, so well, yeah. So my mom is a speech language pathologist. So she's working in public schools. And around this time, and again, dates are fuzzy for me, but it's like 1991. I was five or six. And she decides she wants to go into private practice. And so she realizes if you're going to run a business, or maybe my dad realizes, I don't know which one pushed which one to do it, but if you're going to run a business, you need a computer. And this is 1991. There's a lot you could still be doing with paper 
but we had an Apple, I think it was an Apple II at the time. Again, I, I, we don't still have it, so I don't know what it was. But yeah, so my dad purchases or somebody purchases an Apple for my mom's business. And so it was a ton of fun. Now I'm having exposure to a whole new system in their office. When I would go to the office, I would go and play on the Apple computer. But my mom was equally into tech. She supported this. And uh, she, she supported dad buying the gadgets. Yeah, it was good. No, that, that's good because everybody laughs at me because I, I sit down and I look at the TV. And I'm like, I, I need a big... In fact, I did this in Huntsville. I decided I wanted a movie room. So the first TV I put in there was like 65 inches. And I sat and watched a movie and I said, this is too small because when we get to Letterbox, it's just cutting. I said, I'm giving that TV away. And then I bought a like 75 inch TV and I put it up on the wall and then I'm like this is still too small my wife's like laughing at me she's like Bill I'm like no it's too small so I gave that TV away and then I, I went with the like an 80 an 80s at least 80 inches maybe it's 85 I don't know and I'm still kind of staring at it like it's still too small but I have no more room on the wall <laughs> to put anything bigger and my wife's just like like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know what it is. I just, I don't want, I just need a bigger TV. Like everybody deals, like they just laugh at me, right? But they, they just deal with it. <laughs> so I, I feel you on that. Is it dark enough for a projector? I finally went for a projector. Uh, they got super cheap. I got a projector and I, in my old house, I could do 120 inches diagonally, which was amazing. So I feel you on the size yeah. So so here's the thing, Lee. With the amount of money I spent on three TVs, yeah. I could have bought the projector. And I didn't <laughs> buy the projector because I wasn't ready to commit to like like 10 grand in because if I'm gonna do the projector, I really want the highest end sort of right. So my brain said when it's time to really do the projector and the screen and everything, like you got to have like a $10,000 budget. My brain said, I, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get a TV up there for two grand. Yeah, but two grand plus two grand plus two grand, right? Now you're like $6,000 yeah. in. <laughs> yep. Now I did have an extra TV for one of the other rooms, but, and I'm just shaking my head going, Billy, what are you doing, dude? Like you just dropped 6,000. Like, and imagine the TV I could have bought, but it didn't matter. You know why? Because I sat on that couch and I was so, unhappy i just had to do it anyway my my family lot what comes to, i don't care about electronics I, I don't care about honestly much of anything i don't buy myself much i, I like my my qc 35s i like my little bows like that's it but the tvs have to be i spend a lot of time with the tv on sports i don't know dude so i, I appreciate that mom is like totally into the into the gadgets yeah she was very much on board yeah. All right. So you're growing up in a in a house, latest, greatest sort of tech. You're almost it almost feels even because you have neighbors in, in, in this world that this is just kind of normal in a sense. Like, of course, everybody just gets the latest, greatest stuff. Oh, yeah. And let me set the stage. OK, for anyone listening. And I hope like, you know, of course, I'll share this around. And people will know me. But for anyone listening, I was in eastern Kentucky. This is eastern Kentucky in 1990. Uh, this is coal, like central of coal country. I'm right on the line. This is Belfry, Kentucky, and we're right on the West Virginia border. Um, and we're close to the, uh, the West Virginia coal fields. And everyone pretty much works in mining. And if you don't work in mining, if you're not a coal miner, you're working in something supporting mining. So yeah, my dad worked at a bank. So the logo for the bank had a coal miners profile on it. They were the bank for coal miners. My mom worked in you know, public schools and, you know, that sort of stuff, but you're supporting the people around there, but coal drove everything. 
And so you would see some interesting technology, or I look back on it, I see some interesting technology, like CB radios, very popular. And uh, later, car phones and back phones got super popular for the same sorts of reasons. A lot of people driving coal around in big trucks um, and communicating around that sort of stuff. But it wasn't a very economically diverse area. And so it's still, even to this day, you know, it's still suppressed. It's worse now. It's still economically suppressed. And I didn't realize, I think most children, you don't, you don't realize the privilege that you're growing up in, specifically in that environment. I was extremely privileged. And one of the coal companies, I remember it as being a coal company. Now, it may not have been. But we ended up getting computers in school. So it was like 1990 and it was a big deal because we ended up getting a whole lab of computers. And I remember going in there like there was the stereotypical stuff. Every kid that grew up through the night is like we played Oregon Trail in in the computer lab. But I remember that. I remember already knowing how to use the computer and other kids just being, you know, kind of flummoxed. Like, what is this and how do you use it? So I started becoming aware. I was going to kind of say that because, you know, I grew up in New York and we think like anybody who lives outside of a metro city is, in all, in all honesty, it's just how, you know, you're growing up and especially, I guess, in the 70s, 80s, like, and maybe on TV, I don't know what the stereotype is, but you don't think of kids outside of the major cities having much, especially not kind of having this sort of technology for whatever that is. And so it's kind of, it's horrible bias that I have in my head, but I, I, you know, it, it was kind of driven in there for whatever reason. But you're kind of saying the same thing, right? Like you, you, you happen to have um, parents that had, I guess, good jobs, great jobs, fully into this tech, and were in, kind of investing in it for themselves, and you got a huge benefit out of it. So now, you know, as you're as you're entering high school, what is Lee kind of into? What are you What are you doing, Lee? You're getting just getting into trouble. You're playing sports, music. You're just, what, was, yeah. what is Lee doing as he enters high school? So three things happened that get us there uh, to kind of set the stage for this. So one was my dad joined the local fire. I mean, we knew everybody in the small town of Belfry, Kentucky. And my dad joined the fire department on their board of directors to help them finance buying a new fire engine. And so I started hanging around the fire department at like seven years old. They would train every couple of weeks. They would take me out, let me ride in the truck. We'd go out, spray water, practice, do all this stuff. And they took me with them. And it was a blast. That's a dream for seven. Like, is, if you're lucky, you get a little toy fire truck. Dude. You're playing on the real ones. Okay, here's the deal. Backdraft came out, 91, 92. So I'm watching Backdraft. I'm all of a sudden obsessed with firefighting. And I get to go to the fire department anytime I want and ride around on the trucks. And they treated me like, you know, they're just great to kids. They treated me like a king. It was just amazing. And so a few years later, we moved. And so we moved to another smaller area in, in Eastern Kentucky, Louisa, Kentucky. And I was, you know, asking around, like, do they have a junior firefighter program? And they're like, oh, they do, but you can't join to your 12. I was like 10 turning 11. And uh, my dad got malignant melanoma and he passed away. So in this, like, we've moved towns, we're away from family. My dad passes away and I'm just not old enough to join the fire department, but I was still obsessed with it. And so 12 years old, literally, I think I turned 12. My birthday's in March. I turned 12 like one week. The very next week I was at the fire department. I had filled out my application, junior firefighter, and was just obsessed with it all through middle school. And so we get into high school and this is 1998, 1999. And I get a cell phone because the, the obsession with technology never went away. And so cell phones are still kind of unusual. The smaller bag phones were popular in your car, uh, but those smaller like portable cell phones were unusual. So I had the cell that phone. That had to be super expensive, dude. That that wasn't. Yeah. That wasn't like uh, like even today. A, even today, an iPhone is like a thousand dollars, and everybody has one, which is mind blowing. And that can be a whole it, other 
podcast. But what did you pay for that phone, dude? It had, it had to be two or three hundred dollars. We were with Singular uh, for that for that phone, and yeah, I don't know. It was definitely not cheap. But you know, my mom, bless her heart. So again, my mom's a teacher. So she went back into public school. You know, she's working speech language pathologist, and bless her heart, like she just did not stop me in any way. And so she asked me, like, why do you want a phone? And I was like, well, if I'm, oh, this is the part that I should should mention, Bill. So like, as I'm growing up on the fire department, if it's called the tones drop is the the phrase, but when you get paged out uh, for a call the radio kind of plays this tone signal and it would set off pagers. My mom would drive me to the fire station. So I was like 14. The tones would drop at two o'clock in the morning. We get paged out for a structure fire. I would wake my mom up. She would drive me to the fire station, drop me off. And the guys would let me go. I had my own turnout gear and everything. So jump on the, jump on the truck and go. So this cell phone, I was like, Hey, you know, I'll be able to call you. I'll be able to keep in touch. We'll know what's going on, you know, and, and I had a four wheeler had an ATV at the time. And so I was like, you know, off riding on that. And it just seemed like a good thing to have. Like, yeah. And mom growing up with my dad, you know, and as I grew up, my dad, mom got older with dad. Um, you know, she, she saw the benefit of technology in a big, big, big way. And so she never held me back. And so she's like, I justified it. She's like, yeah, we'll get you a cell phone. And so I had a cell phone and I was talking to a friend about this a couple of weeks ago. It's like, who could I call? because no one else had cell phones. <laughs> I mean, I had to call their landline, you know, it was still like, Hey, is, is Josh home? <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, but I wanted to set the stage is that I'm obsessed with the fire department and I'm still obsessed with technology. So I'm on IRC. Uh, it's still dial up at this point. I still remember getting my first cable modem. And as I'm figuring out like, what do I want to do with my life? My uncle's wife at the time, she started working as an advisor at East Tennessee State University. This is like 98, maybe. And she's telling me, Lee, they have this very interesting program where they do computer animation. And I'm like, oh, that, that, that sounds pretty fascinating because I was never into the programming. I was into the art side of stuff. And so on our original computer back in 92, I was making banners. Remember you had the like tractor fed paper and so you could print these huge, like 10 foot banners. Dot matrix. Just, that's uh, right. Dot matrix printers. Yep. Yeah. So I would make these huge banners. And I was just always into the art side of it. And so in high school, um, at this point, you know, my aunt's pumping this information in. I went and toured the university when I was eight. And so I had, or I mean, I'm sorry, not when I was eight. In 1998, when I was in eighth grade, I'll get it right. Um, so I went and toured the university. I'm like, yeah, this is it. Like, I just made up my mind, like right there. It's like, I'm going into computer animation. I'm going to go do this stuff. It's going to be amazing. And now I just got to figure out what am I going to fill my time with? And so all my friends in high school, they were just, they were into sports. They were into stereotypical things that 14 to 15 year old kids are into. And I'm here like uh, on the fire department, taking life way too seriously, uh, very proud of what I was doing and then chasing computer graphics. And I was like calling Autodesk. So I call Autodesk as like a 14 year old boy. And I'm like, hey, can I get a copy of your demo reel? Because somewhere on the internet, I had seen these companies make demo reels. And I'm like, okay. So I call Autodesk. They send me the demo reel. They ask me who I am, like what I'm doing. And this is VHS tape. So they mail me a VHS tape of this demo reel. And I was just amazed. I was like, oh, wow. All you have to do is ask for this stuff. Like, that's amazing. So I started just calling different places. I called Alias Wayfront. I was like, can I have a copy of your demo reel? And they're like, uh, yes. Tell me what a demo reel is. Because I'm not even sure I know what you mean when you say demo reel. Sure. So go back in time. How many places are actually, yeah, we're in 1999, 2000. How many places are actually doing computer graphics? Like, I mean, maybe 50. There are a lot of them out in the Bay Area. And so you can pick up any popular studio, any game studio that's making games at the time. 
anything that they're doing with software, let's say at the time Alias Wavefront made Maya, Autodesk made uh, 3D Studio Max. Let's say the game company's using 3D Studio Max. Autodesk wants to show off how great the stuff is with 3D Studio Max. So they ask these game studios, send us some sample footage of things that you've made with 3D Studio Max. And so Autodesk compiles a show reel or a demo reel of everything that's been kind of popular and big in the past year uh, in CGI. And you can get a copy of this tape. And it was usually for sales, right? So they want to send this out to prospective clients and say, look what our software can do. But instead, they sent this to a 14-year-old kid in Eastern Kentucky. Why did you want it? Why did you want it? The internet was totally different back then. There wasn't a lot of resources out for computer graphics. Like I was around when CG talked like showed up on the internet, which I think is, I don't know, maybe still one of the bigger things, maybe not, I don't know, but um, they're just, it was hard for me to find information. And I was obsessed with the companies that were building the tools. So the, the technical. But was this video just showing you possibilities? So to get your brain kind of thinking about design or did they show you how to use the tooling at the same time? Yeah, no, this was all marketing. And these companies would also publish training materials but this was not training material and they charged a pretty penny for their training materials too yeah so you're and, just trying to get as much content as you can you're calling all these companies they're sending you this stuff you're like oh my god this is this is amazing maybe because i'm 14 too they're just like like can't believe a 14 year old just called on his cell phone um, right so yeah so 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 go on so what's happening here yeah so i'm trying to tell people about it you know we had 4-h and so we would do the um the poster demonstration. So it's kind of, you know, mini conference thing, right? Kind of prepping you for like, you know, later on in life, but it wasn't a science fair. And um, yeah, I did my poster presentation on 3D graphics. I was like, yeah, 3D graphics, you make a wireframe and this is all like vertices and that's, you know, vector math stuff. I probably didn't say vector math then, but you make a wireframe with vertices and then you, you skin it and you shade it. And I understood this process of creation, 3D graphics. And I, and I did well. I won my little thing in my school. I didn't do well uh, in the district, but I did well at my school showing that off technical stuff. And so the teachers took notice. Um, we continued to get a lot of funding, a lot of grants. So we had this brand new technology lab. I got to learn robotics and this is a cool thing. So I don't know, there's a segue here, which is really interesting. I'm learning about all this software. I know what 3D Studio Max is. I know what Power Animator and Maya, what those packages are. And I go to the high school, so I'm a freshman in high school, and I go to my technology class, and I am just, I am just, you know, what's the language rating on this podcast, Bill? Because if we have to cut it out, we'll cut it out. I'm a, let's do the Southern thing. I was a pig in shit. I was <laughs> happy. I was just blown away with all this technology and like robotics and, and CNC mills. And I was like, what is CNC? What is the CNC? I learned what G code was. You're manually writing G code. I, that was, was it. Like this was my dream. And I, and they asked me like one day, you know how it's like, you know, in high school, if you know, in, in my case, I just hit it off with that teacher. He knew I was into this. And so sometimes teachers will ask you to like stick around, help clean up things, whatever. So it's like after school one day and he's like, can you help me organize the supply cabinet? Well, I dig around in the back of the supply cabinet. I find two shrink wrapped boxed copies of 3D Studio Viz, which is not 3D Studio Max. You must have freaked out a little bit. $20,000 software shrink wrapped sitting in the cabinet. It was given to us. He knew what it was, but we didn't have any computers powerful enough to run it. So we started looking on the internet. We're like, well, what do we need to run this? So we start looking at SGI hardware. And we're like, oh, wow, we cannot afford SGI hardware. But we had a copy of that 3D Studio Viz would run on PC. And so I talked to the principal, or he talked to the principal. I told my mom about this. My mom was working in the same school system. They let me take the software home. I was like, I will get a computer that can run this. 
and they gave me the software. So here's this 14-year-old kid going home one day, the $20,000 software package in his backpack. And my mom let me spend some of like my college savings that she had set aside. She bought me an Alienware computer, which is like <laughs> mind-blowing. And now that's it. So the school invested in me in a way that I don't think they've invested in any other student because that just this weird timing, right? Like, oh, this all stuff just happened at the same time. And I just love telling that story. It was just amazing. That's that's wild, man, that that everybody saw that you were going to be. I think when you meet someone who is not just excited, but appreciates that thing, like appreciates it for what it is, you know, they're going to take care of it. You know, they're going to use it. It's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to just right. And I, I can just get the sense from you right now, listening to you that I would have given it to you as well, because I'm like, better to give it to you than it sit on the shelf and you're going to make it work and then everybody's investing in you like that's amazing right but you 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 didn't take that for granted you you leveraged all of that support yeah. right so you yeah. got this alienware computer what's the first thing you did once you got this thing installed pray that it would actually run on the machine well i opened it and i was just lost it was such a complex program i was completely lost i was like i do not know what to do um, and I, you know, I was like, okay, I know, you know, I need to make geometry. So I figured out how to make a cube. And I was like, I know somehow I need to render this. Like I have, I know the concept of rendering. And there was just a whole bunch of like being stuck, unable to find educational materials on it, but slowly and surely worked my way through it. And um, we ended up building this little model of an amphitheater for the school. And I learned the first bits about compositing. So this is back. So we had the first digital cameras and I'm sure you remember these. You, you put a floppy disk in the camera. Those little three and a half inch floppy disk would go in the camera and you would go take a picture and it would write the picture to the disk. And then you could eject the disk and put it in your computer and get the picture. I don't off. remember seeing any, any cameras like that. I had all the eight track cameras and some digital stuff. I don't remember a floppy disk based camera at yes, all. Yes, sir. Yeah, Sony made them. I'm sure a few places made them. We had a Sony. And so we went out the school was like, oh, we, we think we want to build an amphitheater. Can you help us visualize that? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And it was a big struggle. So we're out with the camera. We take the picture. We get back into the lab. And, and at this point, this is like a year and a half later. So the computers in the school got upgraded. We could actually run 3D Viz on one of the computers in the school. And, uh, yeah, so we did this thing. But we couldn't figure out how to, like, properly render. So we could get the background image of, like, the back, the plate in the compositing. So we get the plate image up there. And then we could turn the model, turn the geometry of this amphitheater the way we wanted it, but we couldn't figure out how to render it and have everything show up. So we took a screenshot. So we would stage all this in the software and then take a screenshot. It's a total hack, but it worked. And uh, everybody in the school was really impressed. They're like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Like, you know, the people that care, that was like, pretty neat that you could do that. So I'm, then, I'm, I'm worried about you, Lee. I'm a little worried about you. Hold on, so time out. Because yeah. you were getting... You're getting completely overtaken by this software, by the possibilities, by the tech. So I have two questions. What's happening with your fire department dreams? And where are your grades? Are you at least getting your homework done? Is there a struggle to do anything other than work on this software? Yeah, homework was tough. Uh, so some of the teachers obviously like helped me lean into the things I was interested in to get homework done. And uh, the fire department was very interesting. So here's this kid. I'm, I'm super nerdy. can figure that out. And uh, this district chief, uh, his name's Jeff Kinzer, and the chief, Eddie Preston. So they both look at me and they're like, I had this nickname, Hootie, because I wore this Hootie and the Blowfish hat till it literally fell apart. 
And they called me Hootie because nobody could remember my name. When I was just a kid, there was just a kid in the corner, 14-year-old kid in the corner or whatever, but they could see that hat with these giant letters that said Hootie. So, you know, the chief and the district chief were like, Hootie, you aggravate us to death. Because I was just full of questions, questions about everything, fascinated by the mechanics of the pumps, fascinated by the mechanics of the aerial ladders, and I aggravated them to death. And so the district chief, Jeff Kinzer, he gives me this book, The Essentials of Firefighting. I don't know. It's like a 400-page manual. I read it cover to cover. I destroyed that book. What a brilliant idea. Let's just get this kid off our backs for like three months. I don't even know if, it, I don't think that happens. I mean, why don't you think it was three months? And they just didn't know what to do with me. And I did aggravate them. And you know how kids are. And even now, like I said, I like to talk. So I never stopped. And they, yeah, I, I rubbed some people the wrong way in a big way. Because as I got into my senior year of high school, we'll fast forward a bit. As I got into my senior year of high school, I saw what was going on in the world. And I was like, okay, we're going to have computers and fire trucks. There probably already were in the big cities. Uh, but like, we're going to have computers and fire trucks. Wireless internet technology is going to take over. We are going to have wireless everywhere. People were just like, no way, no way. Um, I was wrong. You know, it's like cellular became the thing, but same, same. And I was wrong on computers and fire trucks when in reality, we all have computers in our pockets. But I was really, really uh, bullish on tech entering the fire service. And there is this great thing. If you ever watch the movie Backdraft, it's in the first part of the movie. They're making breakfast in the firehouse and they go serve it. And then the mayor's on the TV and there's a sign on the wall beside that TV. And it says the Chicago Fire Service, 150 years of tradition, unimpeded by progress. And I love that phrase. And I'm not putting anyone down. And I've been out of the fire service for probably almost 20 years now. Yeah. And but it is a true thing. Right. We rely on things we know that works. There's a strong tradition there and getting something new in there is risky. And so people were kind of like, yeah, maybe there'll be computers. but like, do you don't know what you're talking about? You're just a kid. And then some part of it's like, you know, they didn't understand. They didn't see what I was seeing. They weren't using computers in their jobs. A lot of guys are still working. You know, they're driving uh, coal trucks. They are working for the city, you know, uh, working on the water department. And they're, they're just doing a lot of manual labor. Even if it's skilled labor, they're just away from technology. They're away from computers. And so I don't know. I kind of ruffled some feathers around that, but they put up with me. I think what you did is scare them because you're, you're, you're almost telling them that they're going to be obsolete soon because if they felt like they couldn't handle the tech and all this tech's going to come in, they're going to be replaced. I, I imagine without you realizing it, you were basically kind of making them feel threatened in terms of their, their job and their position. And they didn't want to, right. They didn't want to be thinking about that. Like, I mean, think about it now, right. Yeah. From what you're telling me. It's 100%. Yeah, it's 100% the case. And, you know, what I told them, what our, I, I didn't envision the iPad, but uh, this other story I like to tell, I found this guy on eBay selling all kinds of old graphics hardware. And this guy's name's Scott. I'll never forget this. Uh, this guy, Scott, and I don't know where he was working, but at the time, like SGI bought Cray at some point through all this. And I got hooked up with this guy that was liquidating stuff from Cray and SGI. And he sent me a Wacom tablet or Wacom, however you're supposed to say it, one of these big digitizers. So it's the old school tablets, the digitizer tablets. And I called Wacom. This was back, I love to tell the story, so sorry, but you know, you can move it around later. But I call Wacom and I'm like, hey, I got this digitizer tablet off eBay, but it's got a connection for a Mac and I have a PC. Can you send me the pinout diagram for the cable connector? Can I turn this to an RS-232 connection? 
And, and so, you know, it goes through a couple people with support and they call me and they're like, well, how, how do we get this to you? And I was like, well, my library has a fax machine. They faxed me the pinout diagram for their tablets for this connection. And I went to the Radio Shack and I bought, you know, a new connector and I converted this Wacom tablet over into an RS-232 connection. And so now as I'm playing with this tablet, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, what if you could draw on this thing and you could draw various things? And so I'm like, there's always still the art side or whatever. So I'm thinking about the drawing and the inputs. And I started thinking about what if you had a touchscreen? Because touchscreens were a thing, right? What if you had a touchscreen you could draw on? Wacom was headed that way. We could see what was coming. I was like, you know, what if you had this interface for incident command when you are working on a, on a fire ground and, or some sort of incident and, and you could do this touchscreen and you could draw things and track people? So I came up with this idea. It was called an integrated fire department accountability and control system. And I told my mom about it and I tell the fire chief about it. I'm like, here it is. Here's the name. It's super technical. And they're like, ah, you know, maybe there's something to that. And my mom, biggest believer in me, right? Moms are the best cheerleaders in the world. Everybody's mom believes in them. It's so great. So my mom drives me three hours or two and a half hours to Lexington, Kentucky to meet with a patent attorney to talk about this idea. So mom's making this huge investment. We take a day off work, day off school. And I go down there, talk to this guy. And he says, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's do a provisional patent. And so as I gave him all the information, gave everything written out, um, he learned more about me, learned more about my mom. Uh, that attorney, I don't remember his name, but bless his heart, he did that work for free. So he filed my provisional patent for free. So for a year, I held a provisional patent on this thing, but I couldn't find any money. I couldn't find an investor. I was learning, you know, I'm like 18 at this point. And I'm learning about investment and all this and just nobody could get into it. And Honeywell at the time had a kind of competing uh, patent that we found doing discovery. And so yeah, it was tough. But at this point, you know, I graduate high school. I am um, still on the fire department when I'm home from college on weekends, but I make it to uh, East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. There's so much to unpack there. And <laughs> we're already like 45 minutes in. So I know. We, gotta, we're, we might need we might need a part two at least. <laughs> but all right, a couple of things here, because I want to talk about when you're about to graduate high school, what's going on in your head there? What are you thinking you want to do uh, and where you want to be? So you already kind of said you ended up going to uh, university, but did you know what you wanted to study? Why that university? What was just to stay home and be around or like, what was the, what was the decision there? Yeah, it was about three and a half hours away from home. And uh, back to the thing I said earlier, uh, my uncle's wife was still working uh, at the university as a guidance counselor. And I had kept dibs on everything that was going on in that computer animation program. And I never changed my mind. That's literally the only university I applied to. I don't know what I would have done if they hadn't accepted me. Uh, in the entire state of Kentucky, there was no program like this. So I got to attend a school in Tennessee on the academic common market. And it was really great. So I got in-state tuition, got to go out of state. And so I'm at East Tennessee State and I'm studying digital media, computer animation. Uh, and I'd never changed my mind. Like That was the thing. I was like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And I kid you not, I mean, it's a super thing. I don't know. It's kind of embarrassing to admit this, but I know my senior year of high school, I would say three or four nights a week, every night before I would go to bed, I would get on my computer. I would open the website for the digital media program. And I would go and look at that website and I would see what the students were doing. I was looking at the building and I was just like, yes, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to East Tennessee State. I'm going to do computer animation. There's just, that was it. Like, there was no 
There was no other option. Was it surreal when you were actually standing in front of the building and then participating in that program? I, yes, a thousand percent. And as a senior in high school, I was already emailing the student group and I was like, hey, how do I join the student group, you know, for computer animation? And they were like, who are you? What is going on? And I'm like, I'm a senior in high school, but I'll be there next year. And I want to be in this group. Lee, and this is like the Rudy story, right? I, I, this is Rudy, dude. I, I, I'm not a Notre Dame yet, but I want to be part of the uh, the group that's polishing the helm. Like, like I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to like quickly transition out of college just because of time here. But yeah. I want to know just did anything happen with your patent? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Yeah, I never. Yeah, did you, was, did you get it? Did you get the patent? No, I didn't. The provisional patent—they're free. You get them for one year, and you have to file within that year. And I—I I just didn't do it. It's too expensive. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and it's a big. It's a lot. You need the right lawyers, and you got to put a lot of money in up front to get them. So I, I but the fact that you kind of went through that process is is pretty cool at such a young age. Yeah, I learned a lot. So let's just—I want to just quickly. Did you end up graduating from? university in the four years with that degree that you wanted yeah i i, I graduated in three and a half i could have finished in three if i had played my cards right but i was missing one credit so i had to stay for another why, semester why so quickly man did you you just put your head down your head down and fo focused on academics only that you did that in three oh, years no i didn't just focus on academics only i just loved it i was doing what i wanted to do this was, was it life had finally like clicked for me and i was burning through it i became president of that student association uh, I kept my contacts with Autodesk and Alias. Um, yeah, I just stayed in touch with the industry people, the companies building the software. And it was just, I, it was, it was my jam. I loved it. Um, and I just didn't stop. I mean, I was just eating, sleeping, breathing, computer animation, digital media. So the program was everything you hoped it would be. I imagine you outgrew the program where they were struggling to figure out what to do with you in terms of assignments. Uh, we had a fantastic faculty, fantastic. And they were the dream college faculty. And some of the kids hated some of the faculty members because they were too unstructured. They were very frustrated. It was perfect for me. Uh, and it was amazing. They tailored everything to me. They really, I can't thank them enough. Uh, there was this guy there, Primus Tillman, and uh, named just like the band Primus. And yeah, every time I had a class with Primus, he was just pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. He had industry contacts. It was on, you know, it was just do this, do that. Um, it was amazing. And did yeah, you have any internships at that point no, too then? No. So that wasn't really a thing in that area. I mean, internships have been a thing for a long time, but certainly not the way they are today where you're kind of like judged getting into your career where you're like, where did you intern? Like I could have tried to intern. You have to travel to the West coast effectively. I'd have to go somewhere. Um, and it just wasn't in the cards. I spent my money traveling to SIGGRAPH to the industry uh, convention every year which was good okay so you're you're now graduating you have all this real practical experience because of your the, the faculty of the teachers where's your head now i imagine i'm gonna guess that you said i have to go to california that's, like, it. that's where the industry is i'm gonna go i don't know what city is perfect for that is it more like la than san francisco but but you're going to california that's in your head so do you start applying to companies almost right away Oh yeah. California. Yeah. So you're my, it was, so I finished in December, 2006. So all through November, October, November, December, I'm applying, I'm sending emails to people I've met. Um, I have still to this day, I still exchange emails every couple of years with, uh, Kim Davidson, the president of side effects software that makes Houdini <laughs> from a conversation that he and I had when I was like 
19, you know, at a conference, but it's like nobody had a job, nobody. And I never asked people directly for jobs in those cases, but it was just nothing was clicking, nothing aligned uh, for me to make the move to California. I was completely broke coming out of college, you know, um, had spent 2006 was right before the 2008 mortgage yep. collapse, which was not a, a good couple of years, but that hasn't happened yet. So you're, I mean, still 2006. So nobody's got headcount in all these companies that you yeah. want to work at. And, and you didn't work. You focused on academics. So obviously you're broke. Yeah. You must be a little depressed. Like you're trying for months to get this job and it's not happening. That's depressing. You know, it can be a little depressing. It was extremely depressing. I was terrified. I was like, I'm standing at, at one side of a bridge and the other side's pure fog. And I don't know if the bridge goes somewhere or if I'm just going to walk off the end of it. And, um, but I had taken a course in college. Uh, this professor, um, I don't know, I think it was adjunct, Stephen Jenkins, taught this class where it was Linux administration, but it was not Linux administration. He was a great professor, and he pushed you into all kinds of corners of you, you know using awk, using sed, like learning more about what the system's doing. And it was the only real comp sci course that I took, but it it had triggered me because I was like, oh, because I was already using Python, I, because I was you know I was all into that department you know, digital media department, I became a lab proctor. And so in the middle of the night, after I would close the labs down, labs would close like one or 2 a.m., I would stay all night in the lab and I wrote these Python scripts that would commandeer every computer in the building to make it my own personal render farm. So that's how Lee, for everybody listening, that's how Lee got his homework done every time when everybody else was still like, oh, I didn't finish rendering. Sorry. Yes, Lee turned the entire lab and the whole building to his personal render farm. It was glorious. You figured out how to distribute partial rendering to all these computers and then stitched it all together. Yeah, piece of cake. Yeah, Maya, you're using Maya and you just tell Maya like, hey, load this scene file and I want you to render frames like 80 to 100. And then the next one would be like, I want you to render frames 101 to 120. So yeah, a little Python script is spit out all the commands. So it pre-generated all the commands. And then I had another little script that would uh, use the Windows tooling to go run those commands automatically, remotely. It would remotely log me into every computer in the lab. And then did run the faculty them. know you were doing this? Did you yes. ask for permission? No, I did not ask for permission. And yes and no, they did because the director of the department at the time, Cheryl Cornett, she was like, Lee, like we should just build a render farm. Why don't you research? Like maybe we could get an industry sponsor you know, to help us get money to build a render farm. So everybody knew it was a problem. People knew like somehow I was rendering a bunch of stuff a lot faster. <laughs> so, yeah, but anyways, well, let's get on topic. So, so, you know, I do this course, this comp sci thing, and I learn PHP and MySQL as everyone does. I find this little side gig making a property rental site and I build this thing for them and they paid me like 600 bucks or something. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really neat. So now I understand how databases work and now I understand how web tech's working. So I kind of chase local jobs doing PHP work and, you know, MySQL, PHP, just anything. And I learned some CMSs at this small company and um, I was at this little, it's kind of like a startup. We had an investor, but it just didn't work out. And so I started looking for jobs elsewhere. And at the time I was fervently religious and there was a website, I think it was called Godbit, but it was like this religious tech forum. So it's just kind of like everything around the Christian faith. If you're into technology, people are on this website. And I find this job posting for a company that makes websites for churches and does like church technology stuff. And I was like, okay, I want to do that. There's good money in that because these churches don't have the tech and man, you can yeah. reuse those templates. Wow. Yep. 
Yeah, I looked into that at one point. So yeah, this is cool. Go, 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 go. Yeah. So so I go to Reston, Virginia. I don't know where Reston, Virginia is. I've never been to DC. I don't know what I'm getting into, but I get this job. I go up there and interview. My she's my wife now, but my girlfriend then she goes with me and uh she's like, Are you doing this? Are you gonna move up here? And I'm like, Yeah, if they give me the job, I'm moving up here because I gotta get I gotta have a job. I gotta make money, gotta do something. And they offered me, and this was shocking. So I should tell everybody, my first year out of college, I made this was the year of 2007, I made $17,000 that year. One seven, $17,000. Hustling building websites. Yeah. So I'm now offered $40,000 or $45,000. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I can live. This is going to be amazing. So I'm looking at apartments online and I move into an apartment sight unseen in rest of Virginia. And I start working at this company uh, in rest and I'm living in Herndon and I'm figuring out like, wow, things are a lot more expensive than East Tennessee in the uh northern virginia dc well, metro area reston is a real metropolitan area dude you're that's not you're not in the you're not in the backwoods right? you might nope. as well be in new york or baltimore or yeah, yeah so, I, I know i know reston well yeah so yeah it was a shock it was a shock i'm like do i sell my car like what do i do i can't afford to drive to work because of the toll road and then i gotta like leave early to not take the toll road and like, I'm literally counting my pennies. So I keep freelancing PHP while my day job is writing ActionScript 2. And, and I was an interactive developer. And we're doing these Flash widgets for these websites. And so I'm doing Flash and interactive stuff and ActionScript 2. And then I'm doing PHP on the side. But I never let go of Python. And in December of 2008, a friend of mine, an, an alumni from university, Jesse Foltz, he uh, emails me and he's like, hey, man, or maybe it was November. He's like, we need somebody to help us do some of this, you know, backfill this work at the Washington Post. We are using Python and we use this web framework called Django. And I'm like, yeah, I love Python. So sure, let me take a look at Django. And I mean, of course, Django is just Python. So it clicked. And so in 2009, I got out of the church website company. I went to the Washington Post and was there for over two years and did everything Python, everything Django. Time out, time out. You stayed in Reston for that job or you had to move? Yep, stayed in Reston. Yep, got married. And, so wife okay. moves in, now, still in Reston. And you must have gotten a raise. I got a raise. So I went from $45,000 to $65,000. And to celebrate, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I bought fruit at the grocery store. So I had been living on cans of ravioli. I was washing my Ziploc bags. That's how poor I was. I'm washing my Ziploc bags. I'm eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And I'm like, oh, wow. I can have fruit. So I went and I bought groceries on my credit card and uh, the, the financial collapse stuff was starting. I'd already missed a paycheck. You know, every company was struggling. Things were bad. Um, yeah. But I remember buying fruit, like celebrating. And I was like, wow, this is going to be great. $65,000. Yes. Life yeah, 20 grand is life changing. Like that's, that's, I mean, you think about it, that's over a thousand extra dollars a month after taxes. Yep. Like the problem is you start living on that paycheck and then it's still not enough. Right. So the, the, the idea is to still try to live on the 50, <laughs> yep. but it's hard when you're, when you're hurting that bad. The commute ate into things, you know, cause now it's 200 bucks a month in, you know, train fees to ride the Metro. Where's so. the wash. Oh, is the Washington post in DC? Oh, we got to go back. So 2009, or, I mean, uh, yeah, no, 2009, the website was an entirely separate company from the paper. So the website was digitalinc.com was the original website. It was a WashingtonPost.com, separate company, total tech startup vibes. We were in Arlington. We were at the courthouse stop in Arlington, Virginia, um, in a really swanky building. It was awesome. <laughs> it was great.
Yeah, and, it's just too bad you couldn't move closer because that would have been more expensive to live over there. That's right. Much more expensive. So how long are you with the uh, the Washington Post? Yeah, so two years. So because you're not doing your passion, dude. You're not doing the 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 digital art stuff, right? You're you're becoming you've become a programmer, a software yeah. developer, a web based software developer at this point. Well, one thing was very interesting when I got to the post. They ran the entire website on Sun hardware. Even though I despise Java, and I was on the record, I despise Java, but the, the, I didn't work on the Java software, but they gave me this little cluster. They're like, here, Lee, you can have 10 servers to run your Django stuff. And I was like, cool, got my own little cluster. And I get on the cluster and get into VI, and it's true VI, and I didn't have like term exported or anything, and I, I couldn't use my arrow keys to navigate. And so now I'm like, oh, wow, it's been years since I've suffered um, at being at something with like, what, what am I doing? I'm in VI. I don't know how to move around. So I remember, you know, JKL, HJKL, whatever, home row keys to get around. I start editing these files and I, I realized they don't give me admin access to anything. And so I start asking about like, how do I install this software? And I, at the time I was like, I would like to run varnish on two of my servers in the cluster. And of course we had F5 hardware load balancers. People don't remember like, man, SSL was expensive back in the day. Like you'd have dedicated hardware doing this SSL termination uh, and load balancing. So we had these F5 load balancers and I wanted to use varnish. And they're like, what is varnish? I'm like, well, that's like software caching load balancer type thing. And I'd like to use this thing from Russia called Nginx too. And they're like, why are you talking about? Cause we're Apache or Tomcat and we're, you know, all sun hardware, but it was oh, amazing. Tomcat. I remember. Tomcat. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I haven't heard that one. Nobody's dropped Tomcat in one episode. So, so yeah. So the infrastructure group, so this guy, Alan Thompson's leading infrastructure for the post, this other guy's the system admin, Donald Kressel. They both make this investment in me because I aggravate the pants off them. Just like being on the fire department. I'm squeaky asking. Squeaky wheel. You're the oh, squeaky yeah. wheel. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't know if you want to go here with the like Bill, you know, like I asked you for advice. I just do. I just ask people because you never know. You got to ask. I ask for advice. I'm like, hey, you know, like, you know, well, what is this? Tell, tell me more about the Sun OS stuff. And so, and tell me how we run our infrastructure and how are we able to serve at the time? We were like 18 million requests a month. You know, that's pretty good traffic. And so they're like show, teaching me Akamai and how that works. I'm learning about CDNs, hands on. Like it was just amazing. And so I, was all in this right there. I was like, yes, infrastructure. This is amazing. You can write a Python script. You can automate all this stuff. And I was hooked and I was into the Django still, but man, the hardware side was amazing. And uh, Solaris and not being able to have admin, I learned all the ways to hack around that. Um, I actually like, we deployed some software and it broke the homepage. We would always deploy at midnight. And so we get the homepage up for the next day. And uh, one of the big links, one of the headline feature links kind of broke. And so I'm in, I drove into the office at 2 a.m. I compiled Varnish uh, on one of the servers and deployed it out of my user space account and ran everything, ran Nginx and Varnish at two o'clock in the morning and showed up to work the next day with my tail between my legs, telling them what I'd done. Cause I told them, I said, I know this was bad. I went rogue, but I saved our stuff. So here you go. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. But, but then I left and I started this whole consulting. Yeah, no, no, tell me, tell me what's yeah. going on. So, so you're there for like two years, two years. The company gets bought paper. Yeah. Okay. It gets bought. Java is eating everything. Yep. So I'm not going to stay. Yep. That's what I decided. All right. So you're not going to stay. So where do you, you just, you just don't leave though, right? You start, start looking. Now start we're talking looking. about 2010. 
2011. Yeah, we made it to 2011. Yeah. So Django is more of a thing. And there's a community in DC around Django and Python, of course. And um, I find this company called Celerity. Um, they do staff augment stuff. And so they placed me at National Geographic. And National Geographic was truly amazing. Amazing CMS that they had built in Django. Uh, the whole program, everything about it. And I, I had started feeling like, okay, this is like the college thing. This is clicking. Um, I enjoy everything that National Geographic does. I'm enjoying everything that I'm seeing, you know, code-wise. I'm loving um, how the manager ran the team. It was just win, win, win. And a few months later, like that manager leaves. Of course, teams get reorganized, reshuffled around. And in all this, my wife um, comes home one day and she's like, look, I'm super stressed. My job's not working out. I want to go back to Tennessee. I want to be close to family. And so I'm like, okay, no problem. So I reach out to everyone. And I ask, you know, in my network and uh, one of my friends, he's a, he's a designer now he's an art director. Elliot Munoz tells me, he's like, Hey, there's this, um, there's this young woman who wants to do this startup thing and you should talk to her. And so I talked to her and she agrees to hire me and lets me go remote. So this is 2012 and I moved to Tennessee and go remote, uh, building my first startup with, uh, her name's Taryn Sullivan. So we started building this. Where was she working out of? She was in D.C. Yeah, she was in Reston. Yeah, she was in D.C. So you were able to go back and then work remote with her at the time. Now, I mean, I guess the, the, the tooling was there at this point, 2011 yep. and 12 to do that. And I had, I had never quit playing video games. And so I had like our team. I was like, yeah, we can use, use TeamSpeak and Mumble. So like I was familiar with like how you interact and socialize online already. So it wasn't a big stretch. Um, and what was the thing? We used HipChat. I think HipChat was the program at the time. So let me let me ask you a question. What was the problem she was trying to solve? Were you the first hired employee? How did all that end up? Yeah. She was working with Walmart, and she would go to China, and she would um, kind of do like these audit and compliance things for factories in China that are making stuff for Walmart just to make things are, make sure things are in compliance. And they start caring about the energy usage and they, there's this push for things to go more green. And she has this idea that uh, we can build software to help small and medium factories go green. We can help them get capacitor banks installed uh, that helps them lower some of their energy costs. And we were focused on something called power factor um, which is this kind of obscure thing in energy stuff. But the way it's described to people is if you go to a bar and you get a glass of beer, there's going to be a little foam on the top, the head on the beer. Well, power factor is like having to pay for that full glass of beer. But if you're not using it appropriately, if you're causing effectively noise on the line, on the grid, it's like ordering a glass and getting nothing but foam. So you're going to get charged a whole lot for not a lot of beer because you're paying for that foam. So we had this thing. We're going to help you analyze your electric bills and help you get connected with, um, I don't know, it's, it's groups like uh, Siemens and, and that group that have these control systems to put these capacitor banks in. And uh, it was all based around bill analysis. So I'm building this Django app that analyzes uh, electric bills from Shenzhen, China. <laughs> and I don't know, we didn't succeed. Um, we ran for two years. You know, I fired myself. We'd, we'd had a team uh, in China and, you know, we knew that if we didn't have money, they're like, you know, there's no money. What do you do? And I was like, look, I'm going to go ahead and try to find another job and 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 bow out. And uh, so that's what I did. But I still think it was a good idea. Um, and I don't know enough about, you know, energy markets or, or whatever. That was her domain. But I had a lot of fun building that. And that sort of like that sort of started this. That's when I named the company Engine Ignite at the time because I was just doing kind of B2B contracting with her. And I'm like, OK, like now I get this. Now I've really done the startup thing. 
and I'm very interested in this. And so I started looking around. And at this point, remote job boards are a thing. So I'm looking around for remote jobs. It was 20, this was going into 2014 and ended up finding some stuff in Atlanta. And they had told me like, oh, come down, you know, come meet us. And it was getting back into news. They did news video distribution stuff. And so like, yeah, come down. Like you have experience with the Washington Post. And when I was at the Post, I built this video content management system stuff. And so like, oh, so you know about video and media. And, you know, so come down and talk to us. I talked to them and they're like, well, why don't you start on site? And then we can let you go remote. It didn't work out. I, I job hopped that year. You know, I went down there. I moved to Atlanta by myself, left my wife in our house in Tennessee while we're trying to sell our house. Um, it was still very hard to sell at the time. So she's still there. Um, she eventually agrees. Like she'll try to get a job uh, in Atlanta. And she does. So she gets a job teaching. She's a kindergarten teacher. So she gets a job teaching in Atlanta. She moves down. We're in this little studio apartment. It's very much like the DC thing all over again. We're kind of broke. And we're struggling, but it's cool because we're in this together because we're paying the house payment in Tennessee. We're paying rent in Atlanta. We were in Buckhead because I didn't know any better. So I'm in Buckhead. Yeah, it was rough and it stressed our marriage. I ended up going to this other really small company. I love small companies, but I just realized like I need to do my own thing. Um, they, I, I, I shoulder too much of the burden. I kind of treat myself as an owner in the company and I work a little too hard and I, I look for someone to kind of help keep me in check. And so there's no one to blame but myself, but I worked 110 days straight without a single day off trying to close this $600,000 deal that was on the table. And we did close the deal, but I was burnt out. And I kept telling them, like, I am burnt out. And when I'm telling them I'm burnt out, like, I'm expecting them to be like, okay, like, let's help you. Like, we'll, we'll get through that. Uh, but they didn't. They were just like on the spot, wrote me a check for $10,000. Like, I told them what was going on and they like wrote me this check. And I'm like, what? Cause they just want to solve the problem. They're just like, Oh, so you just need some more money. Like that's going to help that you're paying that house payment and you're doing whatever. Like no problem. Just, they literally got the little checkbook out and wrote a check on the spot. And I'm like, no, no, you're not hearing me now. They're great people. And you see how generous they are. Like, I mean, that speaks to their generosity right there that they would just like, yes, we can solve this problem. Lee, we're hearing you say you have this money problem. Lee, we'll help solve this right now. So they were invested in me. So there's no ill will. I want to be very you know, careful publicly. There's no ill will there. They were invested in me. But I was like, this is not going to work. I'm wanting something a little different. And uh, so I helped them close up. After I, you know, after I left, I still did some small stuff to close that deal for them. And um, ended up working at a really fascinating company remotely in Canada called What Runs Where. So we were like a mini Google crawling the web, helping people understand where their ads were running. We were in like but 17 different countries. at that point, did you leave Atlanta? Or are you still in Atlanta? Oh, sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, back to my house in Tennessee. Yep, got out of the lease, back in the house, back working remote. and Not uh, trying to sell the house anymore. Thank God it didn't sell. So how do you recover from the situation you put, your in, put yourself in? So there it is, yeah. So Is this um, in your head at this point, is this the last time you're leaving Tennessee for anything? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, we're pretty committed. We're like, yeah, we're this is it. Like, we'll find a way to work locally. And, of course, tech jobs in East Tennessee, they're there, uh, but they're few and far between. So I've, I managed to stay remote. And... um after the, the startup in Canada had some financial troubles, as most startups do, and uh, I left, um, I, I ended up, I felt... Your wife was able to find a, a teaching job again when you came back to Tennessee. She, she went did. back to the same school. That's right. Yep. They were very happy, understanding. Happy life, happy wife, man. It's an old saying, but it's so absolutely true. If your partner is not happy, you're not going to be happy in either direction. You've learned that a couple of times already. She was, they were extremely accommodating and she was as well to let me explore these opportunities. 
Um, yeah, so we're back, and this is uh, 2016. Yeah, so we're back in Tennessee. That that startup uh, in Canada didn't work out so well. My friend had landed at Mailchimp in Atlanta, so we're back to the Atlanta thing. I stayed in Tennessee, but I had connections in Atlanta. My friend's at Mailchimp, and he's like, Lee, we're building this software in Python and Django that manages all of our data centers. I'm like, well, how many data centers do you have? I was like, oh, we got three data centers, and we, you know, like almost 2,000 servers. I was like, that's legit. That's pretty cool. And uh, they brought me down for an interview and they're like, what have you done? And I'm like, oh, you know, Python Django guy. And I really love infrastructure stuff. I ran this teeny tiny cluster at the Washington Post and we talked through some things like, oh, well, this sounds perfect. And uh, they kind of pitched it as like, you know, we're building our own kind of internal AWS dashboard type of thing. And so as everyone does, you know, you're, you're sitting on top of uh, we had vSphere and some stuff and sort of virtualizing things, managing physical hardware. The first time that I had been at a somewhere that was self-hosted at that scale, which was a ton of fun. You've spent a decade working with small companies and or startups. And I haven't heard, you've learned a lot. You've understood all that, but you never had any real long-term success at any of them. Zero success. MailChimp really isn't a startup at this point. This would be your first time that you're going to, let's just call it a medium size, at least at the time, company. Are you excited about the idea that you're, this isn't a startup or you're upset about the idea that this isn't a startup? No, I was super excited because they still had the very startup vibe. Like I was in the office and they were having like the Nerf gun fight and all that. Um, and everybody was super nice. And it just seemed like, yeah, this is like the place for me. Except you're not um, going to be at the office. You're going to be in Tennessee. So I was the fifth remote person they had hired. And two of us started at the same time. And we were the only what I called the real remote people because the other four remote folks, they had already been at MailChimp for years. And MailChimp let them go and be remote. And so when MailChimp, they already had this relationship. So now they're starting to realize, like, you know, as we grow, we're going to hire more remote people. And so... I was at MailChimp for two years, or just shy of. Did you at least it, go on site once or twice a year to create the relationships that you needed to have? I actually in fine, but you have to you, you have to meet people. I'm sorry, like yeah. at some point in that situation, which was really interesting. I actually like begged them to let me stay on site uh, for the first two to three months, and they agreed to that. And so I was in Atlanta, traveling back and forth, but mostly in Atlanta for two months two full months and uh, they had a, they had okay, an but you would come home to your wife. Or like you would come home on the weekends. Yeah. Weekends uh, or every other weekend. You missed had a direct flight. Are you close to an airport in Tennessee? Uh, close to Tri-Cities airport, but I'm driving. So it's a four hour drive and it's through the mountains in Northern Georgia. Oh, okay. Four so hours a, is no big deal. Yeah, it was an I easy hate drive. driving those mountains though, Lee. I, I hate those mountains. They get, the roads get kind of small and there's no guardrails on some of these roads. I don't know how people aren't, flipping cars down mountains every day. It makes me nervous, dude. I had the Jeep, had the Wrangler, and so it was a ton of fun. You know, take the top down if the weather was nice and you know, make the best of it, going out and uh, seeing the sights, see the mountains. So that's not bad then. A four-hour drive, you could be home, and your wife was probably good. Get him out of the house for a week. It was bothering me anyway. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then you, you have your time together on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Like I said, she fully supported me, always has. Um, she is a saint. And... Well, this is a very important point in, in my career because I'd been I'd been kind of piddling with Go since 2012 because when I was doing the Chinese energy management stuff, we were interfacing with smart meters that talked to a protocol called Modbus. And with Python, it was just kind of a pain uh, to do kind of the bit 
manipulation and stuff that you're doing with these devices on the wire. And this new language called Go was floating around and I just looked at it and I remember I wrote a program that pulled the data out, a couple pulled a couple of registers out of this Modbus device and it was like 30 lines of Go. And I was shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, what? And so this is 2012. So yeah, for the past four years, I'm like, yes, I want to work in Go. Like I'm kind of enamored with Go. It's much easier than C. It's certainly not C++. I feel like I'm still in Python sometimes. And so at MailChimp, we start writing Go while I'm there. And I working, I'm working on our, we made a little CLI for our, our database, or I mean database, I'm sorry, our data center management software. And our CLI, of course, is in Go. And I start chasing, you know, Go jobs. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. Like I want to work in Go. This is going to be awesome. And uh, so we got that that going. And this brings us into 2018. And uh, my manager from the Washington Post, when I was at the Washington Post, he had left and was at the University of North Carolina. And I had moved over here to North Carolina to be closer to hockey teams and bigger city stuff. And it's just like, we were kind of done with East Tennessee at the time. And I was like, you know, I don't know what's going to come of things. I don't know if, you know, how MailChimp's going to invest in remote. They started doing satellite offices. And so I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to shake out. So uh, it ended up being like a great move to be over here close to university. And my old manager, he was like, we're going to do some stuff with VR and AR. Okay, wait, and, time out, time out, time out, time okay. out. Right, time big out. jump. While, while you're at MailChimp, you decide you're going to leave Tennessee and go to North Carolina. You just, yeah. okay, I, I need, I, I mean, we got like 15 minutes left here, too, but I need to understand that where that decision came from. I have to imagine your wife at this point has got PSTD on moving. Tell me why, how that came up, because I don't see anything in the story that would suggest you needing to be there um, other than yeah. you said, I want to be close to a sports team. There was like, there were quite, there were a few things. Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, the big thing that happened. So we go out to GopherCon in 2017 and um, had a blast me and my wife. Sorry. We, yes. Thank you. Yeah. My wife and I, we did a road trip in the Wrangler all the way from Tennessee to uh, Denver, Colorado and had a great time while we were out there. We find out my wife's pregnant. While we're out there, we find out, or, or literally the day before we're leaving, I don't remember, but it's like, we find out she's pregnant. And so we start Congrats. having this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So we start having this conversation. Where do we want to raise a family? What opportunities do we want her to have? You know, uh, what opportunities do we want me to have? What opportunities do we want our child to have? And so we're like, what big areas would we consider moving to? And I have so like, you didn't want to raise, you didn't want to raise a child where you were in Tennessee. I was very concerned about my employability, staying in Tennessee, staying remote. Yeah, I was, I was very concerned. So, so I didn't you know. felt like you needed to find some stable place where if you had to go to the, the job every day, you could do that without, again, having to pick up the family and move. That was exactly. a big concern. Yep. Though so, everything you'd done for the last 10 years had been remote anyway. But I was scared. Yeah, I yeah, know. A, a child will, uh, yes. will change Every you start to you're starting to become conservative. Yes. Okay, this is good. So you have this conversation. You both yep. agree that maybe North Carolina is gonna be it's big enough without being too big. There's work everywhere. Yeah, that yep. at the time a lot of people were moving there. That that, that area in North Carolina was growing. So it's you're having this conversation yeah. in the in the car. So you go to GopherCon. Go to GopherCon. We talk, talk the whole way back. We drive through Nashville. We talk about moving to Nashville. Um, we drive through Knoxville. We talk about moving to Knoxville. We talk about moving to Charlotte. 
We have friends in Charlotte. I have like four friends from college that are within an hour of me here in the Triangle. So a bunch of friends from college had already moved over here. You know, the Triangle area, we came over, I guess, three times, four times, just checking everything out. And then we started house hunting and we're like, yeah, this is a good area. Of course, I had to ask permission at MailChimp because of the tax reasons. We already had people in North Carolina, which is a good thing. And I'm like, hey, can I move to North Carolina? Um, Because that also was constricting. It's like, how do I stay, keep my job at MailChimp and move? And so it was like, stay in Tennessee or go to North Carolina were kind of my only options and um yeah so we came over here and uh, so they wouldn't good. keep you on moving to north carolina they wouldn't keep you on i don't know i didn't ask you know i i remote had been a tenuous thing for me with mailchimp um i have very strong opinions about what i think remote should or shouldn't be um and there were things that i was asking uh for mailchimp to make an investment in that wasn't happening at least localized to like my experience being remote um, like I said, they started investing in satellite offices and that sort of stuff. And so yeah, I see. I the, like, the writing was on the wall anyway. So did you have a job before you went to North Carolina? At least you found something. I was still with, you know, no, I was, that was the thing. No, there was nothing here. I was still with MailChimp and, you know, we moved over here. Yeah, you know, it was just while I was here being in proximity to the university, you know, my, my uh, old manager reaches out and he's like, we're doing all this AI ML stuff. Do you want to help us with that? And I was like, sure. Uh, he's like, this is a Python. It's built in Django. Of course, this is a reoccurring thing. It's like, okay, back to Django. Sure. And uh, we go in. I'm, I'm working for them as this. They, they kind of made up this job for me. So the first job was like, I was a, I think they called it like AI engineer or something. But it was all just like ML stuff. It was not true AI. It was all ML stuff, machine learning stuff. And it was a packaged product. But once I got in there and started talking to people, and it was like, oh, you know, we need to make sure it's secure. We need to deploy things. How do we manage our cloud stuff? And I'm like, oh, we use Terraform. Some cut back to like bringing that process in it was kind of a startup inside the business school. So we're, I was inside uh, Keenan Flagler business school. And so like, yeah, we're going to do more emerging technology. And it was amazing. It was awesome. So I'm back to 3D graphics because we're doing Unreal Engine. We're building VR stuff for business students and we're using Unreal Engine to do it. How different was the software, though, now that you jumped totally back different. into it? Yeah, yeah, your brain must have just went like cool, like oh my god, look look what we can do today, and look how much easier maybe it yeah. is, or just because you can do more, it's more complicated. Yep, it was uh, it was way more complicated. Well, game engines are very different; they're entirely different beasts than than authoring uh, software such as Maya. But I, I got Maya, I was back in that, and I was like, yeah, I don't remember how to do anything, which was you know tons of fun. So you're back to learning all that, but I was still keeping my toes. But it's nice that circle comes back because. This is what you wanted to do at least throughout your childhood, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the so, dream dream was real. It was happening. How long are you at this job? So two almost two years. Yeah. And it was December. I was there through December uh twenty nineteen, so right before the pandemic. And what we found out that summer was that there was a um multi-million dollar deficit for the business school. So once the financing had caught up and they were looking and forecasting and they're like, we're in trouble. Um, there's, there's a big deficit. And I don't know how much of that is public, but I mean, you know, it's a public university. I feel like I could talk about this, but there was a deficit. And uh, I just knew like, you know, you, you face that multi-million dollar deficit. Like they're not going to keep play, paying for me to play with VR and AR. Like they, they still care about it. It's still a priority. But as far as my salary being, I was funded out of an endowment. And so like, as far as my program, my salary being funded. And so what I saw while I was there, um, some of the other AR programs on, on campus were canceled. Some other VR programs were canceled. And I was like, I kind of feel like there's some writing on the wall and I'm going to go ahead and look for something else. 
And so it was, uh, it was awesome, you know, for two years there and they're back to it for what it's worth. So for anybody listening, they're back to doing all of this stuff, which is great. And I'm really glad uh, that that's back. I ended up on a whim applying to HashiCorp because I'm like, I want to do Go. Where are the places that I can go <laughs> and and do Go? And so I felt like, you know, I've been using Terraform since almost since it came out. I've been using Terraform since like 2014. And I was like, oh, I want to go work on Terraform. And they had this position open for Terraform Cloud. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And they had an SRE position open. And I was like, oh, I'm going to apply for this. And, you know, they want to go experience. And in the process of interviewing, my interview loop was like, well, from starting interviewing to actually starting at HashiCorp was almost two full months. Uh, but the holidays but that's what were it takes. There. I yeah. tell people six, six to eight weeks from the time you start to the time you you land. Like you got to have that. You got to have the eight weeks. That's kind of yeah. what it takes. So that's normal. That's good. But you got a go job, dude. You got a go engineering job. Well, go but on. I didn't. Uh-oh. There. <laughs> so, so here's the story. And this is, this is, I love to tell the story too. And I said, though, this was like the most fascinating time in my life. All right. So it's, it's 2020 now. Pandemic hasn't happened yet. I'm starting it at HashiCorp and I'm like, this is going to be amazing. But before I started, they were like, Hey, Lee, we actually filled that SRE position internally, but we have a position on the product team. Would you like to interview with that team? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And so the whole time I was I'd being interviewed, it was a lot of like systems, design, infrastructure questions, some Go questions. And so then I did an, my coding interview was in Go and it was a ton of fun. And then I met with our lead engineer and he was like, let's look at some Ruby code. And I'm like, oh, is, this, is there a ton of Ruby? And he's like, well, we do some stuff in Ruby, but we're moving stuff to Go. Uh, and, and they were and they are. And so I get in there and you know, we talk about Ruby and I was like, well, I'm a Django guy. And he's like, oh, but it's all kind of the same. And what I learned about myself, so I take this job and I get in there and it, it's all Ruby to start with. And I was like, oh, that's okay. You know, it's all Ruby and Rails, but I'm realizing, wow, it is very hard to unlearn something. And a lot of my Django-isms are coming out and I became extremely disappointed in myself. I'm getting older. I'm like dealing with a kid now and I'm and, and the pandemic is starting. So I've, I've been at HashiCorp like three weeks before I'm at their big employee conference in Atlanta. I meet everybody. I am like, I am just in love with this company. I am in love with everyone. Everything is as amazing as you think it would be. Mitchell Hashimoto is amazing. Um, it just is what it is. And so I come home and the pandemic is happening. And so all this external stress is happening. And I am not enjoying Ruby on Rails in this environment, in this pressure. And meanwhile, there's this whole other thing starting in HashiCorp, which I can kind of talk about now, which is the HashiCorp cloud offerings uh, for Vault and those things. And it's all in Go. And so the whole time I'm like, oh, I just totally missed. Like, it's just, yeah. And so I, you know, I, I asked around, I talked to some of the leadership and uh, I, I told them, and, you know, this was, this was, HashiCorp was absolutely the right company for me. It was just the wrong time. Uh, it was the wrong time, wrong team. And, and they, just like every other company, they have a thing. They want you around for a year before you do an internal transfer. And um, I had a friend that was doing a startup. He did the YC thing and he was doing a startup. He's like, can you help us, you know, do infrastructure DevOps stuff? And I was like, sure, I can. Um, I said, you know, I'm unsure what the pandemic's going to bring. And we were talking about kind of work-life balance. And he's like, you can work when you need to work. Don't worry about taking care of your kid because she was home with me for a year. Um, and so I, I decided to leave HashiCorp. It's on, on my LinkedIn. It's on resume. I was there for four months. I wasn't fired. Uh, I left on my own accord. Every there, everyone there was just so great. They all heard me out. Um, I got to meet with Paul Hensey. Oh, dude, I, I say, I say it all the time. Timing is everything. Timing, timing is everything. And it was just the wrong time. It wasn't anything more or less than that. But I, I said this in the last podcast. I'm going to say it again. I think it takes tremendous courage to be able to say that in four months and, 
and, and it's good for everybody. It's good for HashiCorp too, because um, this isn't working out. It's the wrong timing. It's not really what I want to do. So instead of suffering through it and causing everybody pain, you make a yep. decision to, but you, you don't burn bridges in the process. I told him in my interview, I said, look, I don't know if I get blacklisted for this. I would a thousand percent come back. Um, it's just, this is just not the right time. And it ended up being the right move. So the pandemic obviously got worse. I kept my kid home with me for a year. Um, and I was back to doing some ghosts. I helped my friend, um, with his startup. I had known him from, from the Washington Post. So I'd known him for about a decade and uh, he was doing, um, routing optimization, which is a thing like, oh, wow, like that's heavy math stuff. I've never been exposed to this. Um, and I had a lot of fun. So I was, you know, writing Go code and, and building an optimizer, uh, in Go, uh, constraint optimization solver in Go, which was really cool. I wasn't doing the heavy math part, but I was, you know, working around the fringes of it. Yeah, it was a blast. And so we got five minutes here, right? So, yep. so how do you end up where you are right now? What get, get me there in the next like couple of minutes? Yeah. So that was it. So that was like through the pandemic, I was helping him. We got our series A, we got preempted for our series A. So I was very proud of that. And uh, the, the way he wants to go, the direction he wants to go is you, he and I just disagreed. And like I said, we've known each other for a decade. We had a conversation. I'll be full disclosure to everybody. I had tears in my eyes talking to him. I'm like, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to do this the way we're doing this. And he was like, okay, yeah, that's totally fine. And um, I ended up uh, going to a company called Zenput back to, cause I'm ping ponging. So I ended up going to this, this company's input and doing Python and Django again. And uh, they had, uh, I don't know. There's some places where they had some some infrastructure lift that they needed. So I joined as a staff engineer for them. I was director, or I'm not director, sorry. I was head of engineering. I've been director, so university. I should throw titles out there for what I had done. So I made it to like technical director uh, at UNC. And then I was head of engineering at uh, Next Move was the decision routing uh, startup. Yeah, I'd, I'd taken the staff engineering position as input. And so uh, for the past year, uh, was at Zenput and they just got acquired. So it was a successful exit for everyone at Zenput, including me, which was wonderful. And they are wonderful people. And we had the same kind of conversation. Um, I have a contract with them right now, you know, that uh, I'm here when they need me on contract, you know, 10 hours a week sort of deal. And, but I helped them do some infrastructure stuff. Um, I, I switched to a product team and rebuilt some of our distributed task processing stuff or imports for our major uh, companies, improved observability. So I got to kind of like get back into like this infrastructure side and, and that sort of stuff and improving process. And uh, yeah, it was a ton of fun. And so now I was like, yeah, I'm going to you know, like do my own thing. I'm going to do the engine ignite thing again. And here we are. And so I've been helping hook deck with uh, all things process, all things startups, startup things. And, and this time was my first chance to try something a little more around developer relations, uh, which I would say is like, I, it's a direction I'm interested in going, but I'm unsure how this is going to work out. I think if, if I were to take the more traditional approach, I will have a lot more success. So if I join a company with an existing brand and just put the reps in, um, it'll be uh, a very different path than what I'm choosing to do, where I'm kind of just helping companies out with this. But I do think there is a market for helping companies get some stuff in place helping them, you know, solve the immediate problems right in front of them. Uh, be it if that can hook text case, getting SOC 2 compliance shipped and out the door and, and starting to, you know, talk about webhooks more in the community. And uh, yeah, and I had my first ever conference. I've never spoken at a conference. I've always been user groups or internal presentations, but first conference talk coming up at DjangoCon 
uh, in October, which I'm very excited about and super nervous, but very excited. Everybody's nervous. I don't care who, who they are and how many talks. I, I'm telling you right now, Kelsey Hightower gets nervous before a talk. Trust me. Okay. If you're not, you're not human. <laughs> so I get, you know, here's the thing I do to help the nerves. I tell every new speaker this. You get on stage a couple minutes before you have to open your mouth because it's that initial like on stage you get you start to freeze. But if you can be up there, you'll, if you look at any talk or you ever see me talk, I try to get on stage early, early to get that over with. And then I'm like relaxed a little bit more and comfortable and then I get the first sentence out and we're off. But if you just have to like walk out and start talking, there's too much going on in your head. So even if it's like you're fumbling with the laptop a little bit to kind of get it ready, you need you need a couple I do. I need a couple minutes to like decompress a little bit up there. Uh, I, I want to bring up two 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 things real quick because we're we're completely out of time. But imagine if you didn't leave HashiCorp. Like things happen for a reason. They they absolutely do. But I feel like you're in this amazing place. And I'm not saying you couldn't have been in an amazing place at HashiCorp. But I love that you're now in this entrepreneurial sort of independent place where you're trying this out. And even if it doesn't work at the end of the day, you, you can look back and say, at least I know that it didn't work out. Yep. But you're, you're, you're kind of a little bit more in charge of that future. And then the other, oh, I can't remember the other thing that had popped in my head when, as you were talking. But I, because we're out of time, I just want to kind of recap that it looks like at the end of the day, even though you're so enamored by the, the graphic side and the visual side and the design side and all that stuff, you ended up becoming a software engineer, right? At yep. at multiple levels. And it seems like you're still you're really happy about that. Like it's it's cool. You you're still getting to do the things you want, but do you have any time or have have you ever thought any inkling of just in continuing to do it as a hobby, the the design and the you know, the graphics design stuff? I was just never good at it. I mean, it's what you realize. Ira Glass has a great talk on this. And it's like, I have some level of good taste or I have taste. I mean, won't say if it's good or not, but I have taste. And I realize that the work that I do is bad. Now, that means I have room to improve and that's a good thing. But um, I and I'm not going to do his talk justice. But if anybody hears this, you know, look up Ira Glass and his talk on on having taste. And it's why it's hard to start something like that, something creative, because, yeah, all I could see was how bad things were. And um, I, I just didn't have that natural talent. Once you get into the, especially 3D animation and 3D modeling, I just realized I don't have that talent, but I have the technical side and I thoroughly enjoy uh, special effects, particle effects, lighting, rendering, um, the render management stuff, obviously. So the infrastructure stuff, you know, getting into DevOps and SRE type stuff and infrastructure, cloud engineering, it all is the same sort of thing for me. I love, it's like giant domino rally stand it all up and then just tip one over and just watch everything automate and go. It's great. That is awesome. All right. We are out of time. Dude, this was a fun story. Dude. I, <laughs> I love this story. I, I, I love how our story starts out in one direction, right? I mean, the, your high school experience, the, the, the fire department, the, 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 the ground, all that stuff. And you kind of end up in a similar, but a, a really different place that I, I didn't, I love when I really don't know the guest very well because it's fun for me to try to start guessing where the story's going. And I early on did not expect, I expected you to be a fireman today and you were doing something with 
you know, graphics or visual arts or something. And you really, at the end of the day, a, a, a hardcore engineer in both that like op space. And I didn't see it coming. I didn't see yeah. it coming. So that that's really, really cool. Well, I will tell you this. There is uh, John Mida was at the MIT Media Lab uh, way back when, but he talks about switching careers and different working in different fields. He talks about building a mountain out of your experience. And some people build really tall, skinny mountains. And some people build short, really wide mountains, but you know, the kind of good mountain has a very wide base and a pretty good height to it. I've yet to do anything in my career that has not benefited me down the road. Everything has been relevant in some way. And it's, you know, you, you seeing those connections, it's just so much fun. It's just fun. Yeah. I'm having a blast. It's great. It's awesome. Okay. If anybody wants to get in touch with you after listening to the show, Lee, what is the best way for someone to reach out? Oh, email me. Yeah. And it's easy. It's Lee, L-E-E at LeeTrout.com. Nice. And uh, on Twitter? Oh, I'm the code writes me because I don't write the code. The code writes me. <laughs> nice. Nice. Sweet. Okay. Lee, thank you again for sharing all of this this was a this was a, a really great story i really appreciate it. i think there are going to be people out there that will connect with this and and maybe now take that leap of faith to jump into something new and to keep finding that thing that's gonna i don't i don't you know the moving back and forth is really interesting right i mean i hate moving dude so kudos yeah. on on having the courage to do that but i i, I do believe that there's always a bunch of people kind of following the same path as others and you can kind of learn from your journey. Thank you. Well, and it was truly a tremendous opportunity. Thank you very much. You got it. So this is Lee Trout and Bill Kennedy signing off to the Art Labs podcast. And I hope to see everybody again real soon. <laughs>